Good morning. My name is Paul Shuttler. And my name is Rebecca Fast. Today we have the pleasure of introducing our speaker, David Courtright. David is an accomplished scholar and leader. His resume includes having served as the executive director of SANE, one of the largest groups that worked against nuclear, nuclear proliferation during the height of the Cold War. David is currently president of the Fourth Freedom Forum and a research fellow at the Joan B. Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. He has been serving in both these capacities for more than 15 years now. He has worked on subjects including nuclear disarmament, multilateral counterterrorism, the use of sanctions in international peacekeeping, and the history of the nonviolence movement. David is internationally respected for his contributions in these fields and has served as a consultant and advisor to agencies of the United Nations, international think tanks, and the foreign ministries of Canada, Japan, and several European countries. His most recent published book is entitled United Against Terror, Cooperative Non-Military Responses to the Global Terrorist Threat, which is co-edited with George Lopez. He has recently completed another book entitled Building Peace, A History of Movements and Ideas, which will be coming out later this year. And more recently, this past month, David took part in the latest MCC learning tour to the delegation um, to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Which is where we met. And grew to love David, so much that we couldn't decide who would get to introduce him this morning. So it is with great pleasure that we welcome you, David, to Goshen College and look forward to hearing from you this morning on the topic, The Power of Nonviolence. Please join us in welcoming David Courtright. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for that great introduction. It was great to be with Paul and Rebecca for almost two weeks as we traveled around Iran uh, and were visiting part of the, quote, axis of evil and learned that the people of Iran are, in fact, very friendly toward us as Americans and really want to see improved relations and friendship between the, the governments and the peoples of Iran and the United States. What I want to do this morning is talk to you a bit about my work and the work of the Fourth Freedom Forum. Fourth Freedom Forum is an organization that's based right here in Goshen. I doubt that many of you have really heard about the forum and know much about it. Uh, we're that big house on the hill when you drive north out of downtown across the railroad track bridge. Probably some of you have been driving north there on Main Street, 15. And you look up on that big house on the hill, the stone wall, beautiful Spanish tile roof, and wonder, who lives there? What goes on up there? Well, it's the Fourth Freedom Forum. Uh, and I'm privileged to be the president of the organization. We are a private research foundation, and we're committed to seeking nonviolent alternatives to the problems of security and international conflict. We write books, we publish articles, we produce reports for governments and international agencies, uh, we organize conferences, we conduct public education campaigns. Our website is fourthfreedom.org, we have many publications and reports that try to look very concretely at the problems of international conflict. Our, our name, Fourth Freedom Forum, is perhaps as mystifying as the question about what goes on in that building up there. Uh, Fourth Freedom derives its name from the famous speech by Franklin Roosevelt, 
1941. It was President Roosevelt's third inaugural address. World war is raging in Europe. It's about to engulf the United States. And Roosevelt tries to articulate a vision of the kind of world we would seek as we struggle against fascism and the forces of war and domination. So we talked about the four freedoms. The first is freedom of speech. The second is freedom of religion. The third is freedom from want, from poverty and oppression. And the fourth, the fourth is freedom from fear, which Roosevelt defined as freedom from the fear of war and military aggression. So our organization, Fourth Freedom, lives to fulfill that vision of Franklin Roosevelt, to try to achieve a world in which we are free from the fear of war, aggression, weapons of mass destruction, and international terrorism. And we focus very much on concrete and practical alternatives to the challenges of security and international conflict. And I have this morning with me a few slides that I'd like to present to kind of outline some of our vision and our inspiration. We try to realize in a concrete fashion the vision of nonviolence that Mahatma Gandhi so famously introduced, shown here with his friend and colleague Jawaharlal Nehru, Nehru who became the first prime minister of free India. Gandhi the Great, of whom Albert Einstein once said, generations from now will scarcely believe that such a one as this ever walked in flesh and blood upon this earth. Gandhi, who shook the foundations of the mightiest empire in the world at that time entirely through the use of nonviolent methods. He showed the world that nonviolence is indeed a powerful instrument to bring about justice, to overcome oppression. And Gandhi influenced many people around the world since, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Here in our own country, we're celebrating his birthday holiday this month. And we're reminded of the enormous success and achievement that he and his colleagues were able to achieve in the US Civil Rights Movement in overcoming racial segregation here in our own country. Dr. King, who took Gandhi's ideas and applied them to the context of the United States, took them out of the notion of dealing with imperialism and freedom for the people of India, and applied them to the challenges of racial segregation in our own country, and who recognized that Gandhi's great achievement was to take the Christian message of love, Christ's command to love all, and to take that above a personal command to use it as an instrument for social improvement, to contest and battle against segregation and racism in our own society, but always through the application of Jesus' message of love through nonviolent action. And Dr. King said that the message of Gandhi was not non-resistance to mean that we do nothing about evil, but rather nonviolent resistance to oppression and evil. We hold absolutely to Christ's command to love and to our commitment to nonviolence, but we fight with every ounce of energy that we have against oppression and racism and war and militarism. This was the message of Dr. King and his application of Gandhi's ideas to our experience here in the United States. 
But it's a challenge to try to apply these ideas today, especially in the wake of 9-11 and the horrendous attacks against our own country by terrorists who commit mass murder, who attack innocent people as a conscious strategy. And in the wake of that horrible event, 9-11, the Gandhian ideas of nonviolence had few takers. No one was interested in trying to seek a nonviolent response to that murderous attack against American civilians, against our cities. But there were some who tried to raise a voice and to urge an alternative. One was Reverend Jim Wallace. Jim Wallace, who is the founder of Sojourners, who's spoken here at this podium and here at the college many times, and who said in the wake of 9-11 that if nonviolence is to be relevant, it must address the questions that violence purports to answer, but do so in a better way. And he challenged us in movements for justice and peace to respond to the horrible attacks of 9-11, to this danger of international terrorism and mass murder through nonviolent means. Is it possible? Can we deal with the likes of an Osama bin Laden with nonviolent means? Well, I believe we can. And in the book that was mentioned as our new volume, uh, Uniting Against Terror, we outline strategies for how it's possible to deal with terrorism through nonviolent means. And this is an overly complicated outline of some of our principles. But really, uh, just to look at it in the general terms, uh, to overcome terrorism, violent extremism, requires both a protective strategy and a preventive strategy. Yes, we do need to protect ourselves from those who plan mass murder against innocent people. And we can do that through means that are not war. And this concept of a global war on terror is misguided and profoundly counterproductive. You can't fight a war against terrorism. Terrorism is a method. There's no country, there's no army that you're trying to attack. Terrorism is a method, it's a concept, it's a distorted vision of how to bring about change. You don't wage war on something like that. But we do need to protect ourselves, and we can do that through better police and intelligence operations, through the work that the United Nations has been mounting to enhance the rule of law around the world, uh, and through better protections here at home, all these security measures we now have to go through when we travel by air, all of that's part of a protective uh, approach. And these methods really work. There's a story that we have not heard in the media that's profoundly important about the strategy against terrorism. We've heard a little bit about it. You may recall that last summer, in August of 06, that was summer and a half ago, August 06, uh, there was a story that uh, there were plots to blow up 10 airplanes leaving London for various American cities. And thankfully, the police in Britain were able to intercept uh, messages, were able to interdict and thwart this plot. People were arrested before they ever got to the airplanes. Thousands of lives were saved because of good police work. And I've had a chance to talk to some of the police officials in London who were part of that process. And they were able to prevent a terrible act of violence through good policing work, by getting information from people in the community, 
by getting intelligence from authorities in Pakistan and Germany and other countries. So good old-fashioned police work, cooperation among intelligence agencies in several countries was effective in preventing terrorism. That's how you protect yourself against the likes of Osama bin Laden. But then we also have to go to these preventive measures that I outline here. And this is a complicated, much more long-term, uh, more controversial approach, but it's absolutely necessary. We have to recognize that many people in Arab and Muslim states, while they may not be personally committed to committing these acts of violence, they support the general struggle of those who claim to be fighting against military occupations, against oppressive conditions. The Israeli occupation of Palestine, the American occupation of Iraq are profoundly unpopular and widely opposed throughout the Muslim and Arab world and indeed beyond that. These are political grievances that motivate hatred toward our country. And they are unjust policies in their own right. So efforts should be made to address them. Uh, there are problems of lack of governance, lack of democracy, lack of human rights throughout the world. These need to be addressed because they create conditions conducive to violent extremism. And we need to provide greater social economic opportunity for literally billions of people in this planet who suffer from poverty, who lack opportunities, who feel oppressed and isolated, marginalized in their communities. It's a big challenge, but ultimately the strategy against terrorism must address all of these broad-ranged issues. Unfortunately, our president, our government, has instead waged war and most egregiously in Iraq, the fiasco, the disaster that has been created by our unprovoked illegal aggression against Iraq. Much has been written about and said about Iraq, uh, but it's clear that it has been uh, counterproductive. It has increased the violence and hatred toward the United States. There are now thousands of violent terrorists operating in Iraq in a country where they did not exist previously. So we have a real problem, and whatever one may think of the so-called military surge that the administration has been mounting over the last year, the fact is that we face a continuing problem. Our president and other officials are saying that we may need to occupy Iraq for many years more, perhaps decades more, and all the while creating more enemies for the United States. So clearly there has to be an alternative. And at Fourth Freedom Forum, we've talked uh, for some years about uh, alternative policies. I won't go into all the details now. But the basic approach is that we, the United States, need to end the military occupation. We need to begin the withdrawal of our forces, a gradual withdrawal. Granted, it may take a couple years to get all of our troops out. But we need to make that commitment and allow the Iraqis to run their own affairs. We need to give a greater role in helping to manage Iraq's transition to the United Nations. Uh, we've proposed to do that in the past, but we need to do it again now, but do so in the context of the withdrawal of American military forces. We also need to restore greater democratic rights to the Iraqi people. There was an election in Iraq 
uh, in 05 that was widely considered to be a success. It enabled the Iraqis to elect their own representatives. We need to have new elections at the national level and at the provincial level so that the Iraqis can elect leaders who will now have full sovereign control of their country. And we need to work with the states in the region, with regional bodies like the Arab League, like the Organization of the Islamic Conference, to encourage the nations in the region to work with Iraq and Iran to secure that region. This is not a problem that the United States has the authority to control. We do not have the right, nor do we have the power. And we have created an incredible mess of the situation. It's time for us to recognize that we can, we can and must relinquish military control, turn it over to the Iraqis themselves, to the UN, seek the assistance of neighboring states, and then help the Iraqi people achieve a stable future. Iran is another major dilemma, as Rebecca and Paul said, and as I mentioned earlier, we had a chance to visit the country recently, and were overwhelmed by the friendly and warm reception we received. And it motivated us to really try to seek uh, even more intensely a solution to the issues that divide our country from Iran. And the principal issue is the threat of Iranian nuclear weapons. And we see a great deal in the press of concern and alarm that Iran is building nuclear weapons. Iran's going to get the bomb. It's going to spread in the region. President Bush warned just a few months ago, maybe you remember, that there could be World War III if Iran doesn't give up the bomb. But what is the situation in Iran? Well, it turns out our own government, U.S. government, National Intelligence Estimate, the official uh, finding of all of the U.S. intelligence agencies, they just reported a few weeks ago that, well, actually, Iran does not have the bomb. And yes, Iran was working on a nuclear program, but it gave it up four years ago, more than four years ago. So the U.S. government, even our own intelligence agencies, say that Iran is not now developing nuclear weapons, which means that there's no grave danger and certainly no need to panic and no reason whatsoever to think about any kind of military action against Iran. There's plenty of time to have a diplomatic process to work out our differences through diplomacy. Now, it is true that Iran has a nuclear industry and is slowly developing the capacity to enrich uranium and to develop its nuclear industry. But under the terms of international treaties, Iran is fully entitled to have a nuclear industry and even to have uranium enrichment programs. So we need to understand that they have that right and work out an arrangement whereby if they develop this nuclear industry further, we can have international inspectors on the ground and have assurances in the United States and around the world that Iran will be developing its nuclear industry solely for peaceful purposes and will not build nuclear weapons. And we have, thankfully, international inspectors working in Iran now, and this is the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Mohammed al-Baradai, and his inspectors are in Iran as we sit here, uh, and they're there every day monitoring the nuclear program, and they have a special task force in Iran now trying to clear up uncertainties about Iran's past 
nuclear activities. And uh, Mr. Albaradai said just a couple weeks ago in his report that the inspectors are making good progress in clarifying questions about Iran's past nuclear activities, that the Iranian officials are cooperating and are granting full access and are answering the questions that the international inspectors are posing. So we're thankfully able to get information that we need and are able to have assurances that Iran's program is indeed being used so far for peaceful purposes. And we need to get more information and to develop further inspection. Uh, these inspection programs are similar to what was conducted in Iraq. Remember when the war began in Iraq in 03, President Bush said we need to go in there in order to disarm the dictator. But in fact, UN inspectors had been working in Iraq since 1991, and they had effectively located and destroyed all of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, all of its weapons programs. And a similar kind of program of inspection, not quite as vigorous yet, but very widespread, is underway in Iran. Not to destroy their weapons, but to ensure that their existing nuclear program does not move to the stage of weaponization. So this program has uh, in profound importance for the security of the United States, for the security of nations in the region, and needs to be the kind of focus that we emphasize for our approach to Iran. So we have plenty of time for diplomacy. Our purpose should be to ensure that these inspectors uh, continue to have access, that they get wider access, uh, and are able to do more vigorous inspections to provide real guarantees that Iran will not be building nuclear weapons. And then from that, we can begin to rebuild our political relationship, our, our diplomatic relationship. Uh, we ought to be opening up diplomatic relations with Iran. You know, we have not had any ambassadors, any diplomatic relations with Iran since 1979. It's ridiculous. We can't understand each other unless we talk to each other. Some say, well, you shouldn't talk to your enemies, but really, isn't that what diplomacy is all about? You need to talk to your adversaries and try to find out what the differences are. Ronald Reagan, the arch-anti-communist conservative president, he talked to the Soviets. He worked out arrangements with the Soviet leader Gorbachev that helped lead to the end of the Cold War. Richard Nixon, again, very conservative president, he met with Mao Zedong, the leader of China, and we were able to open the doors to develop communication and now very tight and very extensive economic relations with the Chinese. Diplomacy works, and we need to employ this approach now with Iran. We need to go and talk to the Iranians, begin to open up diplomatic relations, open up trade relations. You know, when we went on our trip, Rebecca and Paul and our other delegation from the MCC, we had to go to Toronto to catch a flight to Tehran. It's ridiculous because our government won't allow us to go. There's only a few hundred Americans who get to visit Iran each year. Again, the result of this policy of isolation. If you are not able to talk with people, ultimately you will end up being enemies and the chances of war will increase. So we need to open the doors, use diplomacy, get rid of these sanctions, uh, and begin to befriend the people of Iran. And they told us, they like Americans. 
They want to be with us. They want to see more Americans come to their country. More of them want to come here. That's the way that we can achieve a solution to our differences entirely through nonviolent means. And I'll end with this concept of a battle of ideas. This came from the White House. The administration of President George W. Bush put out a report a few uh, months ago on the strategy against terrorism. And even the White House, which has unfortunately been actually devoting much of its energies to war, had to admit that the most effective strategy for overcoming violent extremism is to have diplomacy, to reach out to other people, to address the questions that I mentioned earlier about political grievances, about the opportunities that so many people in the world need, about fundamental issues of governance. People around the world aspire to and admire the values that we hold dear in America, the values of democracy, of freedom, of human rights, the ability to prosper, the opportunity to come to this country and make something of yourself. That's the most powerful, quote, weapon that we have when we fight against violent extremism and terrorism. Let's use those kinds of, quote, weapons. Let's show our best side to the people around the world who are perhaps motivated to support these extremists and show them that we stand for democracy and freedom and human rights in a genuine fashion. Let's extend the hand of trade and friendship and dialogue, not the iron fist of war as we're doing now. And if we have that kind of a policy, if we rely on our values, if we use our ideas and our principles rather than our missiles and tanks, we will achieve greater security, we will protect ourselves, and we will help other people in the world achieve real freedom, back to that freedom from fear, freedom from want, and a better life for, their, for themselves and their children. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Just to inform all of you, David has to run because he's teaching a class at Notre Dame right after this, but right outside the door here, you can buy a copy of his book, Gandhi and Beyond, for a discount price cheaper than you can get it even on Amazon, $15, if you'd like. Thank you again, David.